when I saw Mingyesa starting against Dinamo Kiev, I was like, this is going to be a nightmare. Hello and welcome back to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. I'm host one, Will Algren. I'm joined here today by host two, Martin Grossman. How are you doing, Martin? I'm doing all right, man. Uh, it's good to see you. I think last week we we kicked things off with a with a bang, and we managed to somehow uh, release a podcast on a subject that once we released it was actually already irrelevant. Um, so I think that this this week we managed to time the recording of this such that we have a Champions League fixture now what like one hour two hours away <laughs> one hour away hour from kickoff. and ten yeah hour and ten from kickoff so I think that um right now we're kind of uh you know we're mimicking the same sort of delivery so we have to figure out a delivery scheme I think a little bit better where we make sure that people are ready for this when it comes out and we're not missing that target but I think We've got a pretty exciting topic to discuss today and something that's a little bit unorthodox. So how are you feeling, man? I'm I'm feeling all right. I feel kind of similarly about our last episode. It's disappointing that we leaned so much into the theory part of our title and then making a whole episode that was completely theoretical and about something that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, I think but, it was uh, like literally, what, 48 hours after, 24 hours after we released this two-hour like behemoth recording of us talking about all the ways we could really figure out in that the Super League was actually going to be a positive thing. And then all of a sudden it was like every single club, you know, pulled out of the deal. And we talked about like the, the pirate metaphor and all these pirates on a ship. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you were like, no man, like they're not going to do it. Like if they pull, if, if one team pulls out, they're just going to replace them. And then within the span of hours, they all just jumped aboard, jumped off, jumped, jumped off board. It was just, I mean, yeah, surreal, really. It was as we were editing uh, on Tuesday and kind of just slowly seeing more and more teams drop out and trying to convince myself that uh, th this episode's <laughs> still going to be fun. Oh, I, guess, I guess I just, I overestimated what the Super League people were doing. I thought they were like, you know, super villains who were like had an evil plan and they were going to say like, no one's going to stop us. But then they got asked to stop and they just stopped. So I don't really know what to think about that. I think what's interesting too is like, you could very well see this still be a massively seismic shift. I think a lot of the things that we chatted about are likely still valid in terms of the way that something like this down the line could impact the game. And now it's kind of just a matter of like, are they going to do the new UCL format? Are they going to stick with what we've got? I don't really know. It'll be interesting to kind of follow. Yeah, I don't think this is over. I think the Super League will be back at some stage. Uh, Florentino's still trying to keep this one alive. Though. It, you'll see it again five years or something, but... It's a good job for now. We we staved it off for a little bit. Football is saved. It's still fair. Um, but let, let's move on. We spent enough time talking about the Super League last episode. I want to <laughs> I want to get into some real soccer because we talked for two hours uh, last week, and I don't think we mentioned a soccer game or player a, a single time in that entire nope. span. All very idealistic. All very kind of hand wavy. If this happens, then this may happen, and then this may happen. So, let's dive right into it, man. Yeah, let's um, let's let's be a bit more grounded this episode. So, myself and actually watching soccer, as I mentioned last time, I'm a Liverpool fan. I, I watched the Premier League, and this year has been 
generally pretty horrible as a Liverpool fan. Watching the great team that we've had <laughs> the past couple of years kind of fall apart and just looking yeah. completely hopeless in front of goal. It's, it's been rough. I haven't enjoyed the last few months particularly, but one thing I have really enjoyed is the emergence of a young, well, not so young, actually, is 23, Liverpool center back called Nat Phillips. And if anyone doesn't know who he is, you're missing out. This guy is really fun to watch. And I just want to go into a little bit about how Nat Phillips got here, because he did not take the normal path that most players take to playing at Liverpool Football Club. Uh, Nat Phillips spent pretty much his whole life as a Bolton Youth Academy player. And in 2016, he was released by Bolton because they didn't think he was good enough. And he had a choice to go to the University of North Carolina in America to get a scholarship to play college soccer here in the U.S. And then two days before he was supposed to travel to America, he managed to get into Liverpool's Youth Academy in 2016. And he kind of stayed there for a few years. He played one first-team match in 2019, just a throwaway FA Cup game, early rounds. We had a lot of rotational pieces in. And it didn't look like he would get a chance at this club. And in 2019-20, he was loaned out to the German second division. He played for Stuttgart as kind of a rotational option. And he was good for them, but nothing really special. He came back to Liverpool and... No one expected him to ever play for Liverpool. The idea was kind of that just his contract would run out and maybe he'd get signed by a lower league team. But the thought that his professional top level football career was over before it even started. And then this year hit and all of Liverpool's center backs got injured. And we ended up at a point where we had no one else to play. And Nat Phillips got his chance and he took it with both hands. And he has been sensational. He's been one of our best players this season, one of the only bright spots in a really kind of underperforming team. And the thing I like the most about Nat Phillips is the way he plays. Because Nat Phillips does not look like he should be a professional soccer player. He doesn't have the passing for it. He doesn't have the dribbling for it. He doesn't have the pace for it. But Nat Phillips is incredibly good at two things. He is, you know, even among the top European center backs, he is absolutely elite at heading the ball away and clearing the ball away. And by leaning on those two attributes and not doing anything else, Nat Phillips has become the ideal uh, type of player who I think me and Martine have decided to call one-trick ponies. These are players that despite despite not having the overall skill set that most of the other players in the league, the competing clubs have, they're so good at one trick, they're still able to be successful. So before I get too much further into Nat Phillips, I just want to ask, like, are there any players you've been watching recently that kind of fit this mold of the one-trick pony? Yeah, I guess before even I get into that, I, I, I have to ask, you mentioned, like, that Nat Phillips didn't follow the the tried-and-true path to, to the Liverpool first team. Is the tried-and-true path coming through Southampton, or, or what do you what is your, uh, you know, regular standard there? It's, yeah, coming through Southampton. You know, you, you generally expect if a player is going to play for Liverpool – you know, there's two ways they can get there. They can either be bought or come up through the Liverpool Youth Academy. And if they get bought, it's probably going to be, you know, a reasonably expensive sale. It's going to be an Ozan Kabak or Ibrahima Konate, the type of players we're buying now. Van Dyke, Gomez, Matip, players that, you know, you come in with some expectation that they're going to be good. And I think similarly for the academy players, you know, most most players you get at that young age, there's some hype around them. You know, there's this idea like, oh, this guy's 18 and he's going to be really good in a few years. What, what's unusual about it is not that he came from the academy, but that 
no one talked about him in the academy. He was he was much older than all of the other players there, and he was getting no hype. That's what really makes yeah. him stand out to me. Well, and I think that's a good thing to add because the player that I really wanted to chat about and, and kind of tie into this too is this is the man known as Oscar Minguesa for Barcelona. So, Will, obviously, you're talking about your Liverpool center back. I'm going to be talking about a Barca center back who had a very, very similar kind of trajectory where he basically grew up, as far as I'm concerned, he, he was born in Catalonia. In Catalonia, um, He joined the academy in 07, so very young. Um, and he won the youth league, the UEFA youth league with Juvenil A, and then moved up to the B team for the 19 or the 2018-2019 season. And, and in that youth team, like I, I was, I had kind of followed him very loosely because he just wasn't a figure that people had their eyes on. He wasn't somebody that was, you know, we had this guy Manchu who was kind of like, I don't remember whether he was the captain or not, but he was like very much the captain figure. And then you had Alex Collado and you had like a young American in Conrad de la Fuente. There's a lot of these players that like everybody was kind of watching. You had Eli Shmuriba, all these different guys. And this guy was incredibly irrelevant. We're, we're, we're talking like did not start for the B team. Didn't get minutes for the B team. Anytime he played, he was inc- just like almost even like an eyesore. Like it, no one really kind of paid attention to the things he was doing and no one even remotely considered it. And then fast forward to like November, late November of 2020, where we've got a Champions League group stage match against Dynamo Kiev and PK is injured. And this is the guy that we've brought up to take his place and start in a Champions League match. And so I think that what's kind of interesting is if you look at Mingisa, he has had a similar trajectory where very much overlooked, very much the type of guy that nobody ever expected to be at this level. And when he started, people were kind of looking around, I think, in the Barca sphere, like, what, what is this? What, what is going on? Like we get it's Dinamo Kiev where maybe it's not, you know, the Juventus fixture. But what is this? And, and what is this guy doing? And so I think that kind of in the same vein that you had mentioned, um, it's interesting because now ever since then, Oscar Minguesa has become probably, I would say, one, our most improved player this entire year. Two, an incredibly valuable defensive piece in a defensive line that has shifted from a four back to a five back to a three back. Um, and he's kind of like been a huge cog in that machine. Um, he's played fullback for us. He's also played center back. And so his stats are a little bit interesting because you can compare them to center backs or fullbacks. But like, if you compare his stats to, to center backs, the thing that he's like really, really good at, he's in the 98th percentile um, based on like almost just shy of 2000 minutes played compared to the, you know, the big five league center backs. Um, he's in the 98th percentile for pressures. And so this is, I think, something that will be pretty interesting to kind of dive into is like you mentioned that Nat Phillips is like an exquisite clearance god, you know, or like he's very good at heading the ball out away. And, and Minguesa is just this guy that makes a lot of pressures and he's also in the 97th percentile for tackles. And so I think it's going to be interesting for us to chat a little bit about like what it means that these guys are good at these very, very specific sides of defending because when we compare them to say PK or Van Dyke, which are kind of like the gold standard within our respective teams. Sure. There's, there's huge differences, but today, right now, these guys are playing out of their minds. Yeah. And I, I want to touch on that, that stat you mentioned of Mingueza being at the 98th percentile for pressures. Uh, it, 
that's necessary. If you're going to be a one trick pony, you need to be very, very good at that trick. And Nat Phillips is the same way, you know, using those same metrics, he is the 99th percentile for clearances and aerials one for all center backs in Europe. And uh, I, I think it's not a coincidence that both of the one trick players or one trick ponies we picked out are center backs. I think that's a position where it's maybe easier to be a bit more limited, but I think these players exist other places on the field too. Totally. Uh, some examples I would think of uh, Chicharito, Javier Hernandez, Mexican striker. He played in the Premier League for a period. He scored 70, 60 or 70 goals, and almost all of them were from inside the opponent's six-yard box. He was pretty <laughs> much useless everywhere else on the field, but he would put those chances away, and he had a lot of success huh. doing that. That's uh, a good example. I think I think Chicharito actually scored a hat-trick recently, but he had a horrible year in the MLS prior to that. So it's easy to see kind of like that hot, cold, hot, cold. If he's doing the thing that he's good at, he's unbelievable. If he isn't, he's non-existent. What other yeah, examples did you have? Uh, I was going to say Adama Traore, I think, is another example of a, maybe a bit higher level high trick pony. But he's he's someone that's not expected to do that much except be kind of a ball progression god. He's going to pick up the ball mm -hmm. deep in his own half and sprint past four or five defenders with it. Sometimes he'll find a good cross, but most of the time he'll lose it or win a free kick. But the ball is still in a better position at the end of it. And they take advantage of his physical qualities to be able to do this. Yeah, and I, I, quite, I quite like him too because I think – or I like that example at least because he is – I think he's scored like one goal in the past calendar year. And, and yeah. he is a guy that people had high expectations for who had great potential. It's just this weird physical specimen. But you're totally right. He's like a bulldozer. He gets the ball. He He – trucks through people he's unbelievable with his feet i think back when he was playing for it might have been middlesbrough or something back in the championship he was like by far the best 1v1 dribbler stats wise in the league and now he's doing the same thing in the epl he's just he doesn't have the end product he's not really like passing the ball a lot he's not finding you know filtered through balls it's just that one thing yeah, and, and to be fair to Traore, uh, Raul Jimenez has been out for most of the season. He was a huge part of anything Wolves are doing in the goal-scoring department. So I think those numbers will improve once he's back. And I, maybe he's not a complete one-trick pony, but I think this season he kind of has been in the way he's been used. Um, and there's there's a lot more examples here, but I think there's, there's certain archetypes you can kind of see. Uh, you know, you have the striker who's not good at anything except finishing. You have the winger who's not good at anything except being fast and dribbling. And you have the center back who's not good at anything except defending. And the prime example, I think for me right now, of that center back, like I said, is Nat Phillips. So I just want to look a bit more at how he's played because he's he plays a very limited style. You know, Nat Phillips is all a minimalist dream in soccer. If the ball is close to him and he's under pressure, He's going to kick it very far away or head it very far away. <laughs> if the ball is close to him and he's not under pressure, he's going to pay, play a short pass to a teammate. And if he does anything outside of those two things, it's a massive surprise. You know, I, I know exactly <laughs> what to expect from him. And I kind of love that. And I, I think what Phillips has done is made even more impressive by who he's replaced in that Liverpool back line. Because like I mentioned, there's been a slew of injuries and all of the Liverpool center backs are now out pretty much. But effectively, uh, Phillips was replacing one half of the Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez partnership. You know, two players mm -hmm. that have got a lot of great media attention that are very hyped up. Van Dijk especially as being one of the absolute top center backs and even players in the world. And what's really weird is that Liverpool's defense has gotten better
since this happens. Liverpool's defense has been better this season with Nat Phillips at the back than with Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez. And the stats back this up. We've conceded eight goals in 12 matches with Nat Phillips, which compared to 14 in seven matches for Gomez and 11 in four for Virgil van Dijk. And I, I'm not... It almost, it almost doesn't even make any sense. Like, like you hear those numbers... Um... And obviously, the, the, I guess the issue with some of those things is like if you consider sample size and if you look at like maybe the number of goals that Van Dyke has let in over the course of his entire career with Liverpool, you might find something different. But those numbers, if you look at it through that lens, yeah, it's shocking. And I think if you look at kind of our situation at Barcelona too, just like you had said that if the you know if the ball is going to get close to Nat Phillips, you know exactly what's going to happen. If mm-hmm. if there's going to be a player that receives the ball at the half, I know for a fact that I Mingueza is going to be on his back. That's that pressure stat. Like this guy doesn't let anybody turn. He gives up a lot of fouls towards the half line because and Lenglet does the same thing. It's probably a coaching thing, but he's always pressuring. He's always near somebody. He's always kind of like that Nat that's just kind of always bugging you, always being a nuisance and. And I think that what's what's kind of intriguing there is is and maybe we can dive into this right now is like the skills that we're talking about specifically that are that qualify for these like one trick pony tricks, right? At least for defenders, you rarely ever see a player like this that whose main trick is like interceptions, right? Interceptions is something that requires a lot of perceptiveness and maybe more experience and more like positioning awareness and wisdom and having played in the league and seeing the wingers, you know, where they tend to pass the ball over the course of five years. It's really these things that are very like effort based, right? Like if you think about clearances or if you think about aerial duels or pressures or tackles even, which there's technique involved in tackling and heading the ball, but a lot of time it's just who wants it more. And and I think that there's a reason why we're seeing these players excel at these specific things because it's a lot of like effort related things it's a lot of grinding away at something it's a lot of like who wants it sweating more than than the than the other kind of people and and there's maybe some sort of psychological aspects to get into there too but what are your thoughts on that will yeah i agree i think uh i mean you can generally say that there's some skills in soccer that kind of go along with other skills it's pretty rare that you're going to find a player who's an incredible passer incredible finisher but he, he can't dribble at all like if you have some technical ability, then that's probably going to carry over to some things. I think that's why you maybe see more of these one-trick ponies in the defensive area, where it's these skills like tackling, like heading the ball that don't really translate to what you're doing on the ball or the rest of soccer. You can still excel at and be a very important piece in a team. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Get back to I, I think- what you said about the stats. Um, and it, it is kind of unbelievable. And I'm not trying to make the argument that Nat Phillips is a better player than Joe Gomez or Virgil van Dijk <laughs> or all, all you angry Liverpool fans come at me. But yeah, that was going to be, that was going to be my, my, my clickbait title that will vetoed at the beginning of this, or yeah. that I was like, is Nat Phillips better than Van Dyke? And we said, you know what? Maybe we probably shouldn't be so inflammatory, but it's crazy. It's not, it, he's not better. And you know, the stats this year say that he's better, but that's, that's being unfair. I'll admit that looking at these stats is like you said, looking at a tiny sample size for Van Dyke and it's including the Aston Villa debacle where we conceded seven goals with our normal starting center back partnership, but even removing that, I mean, Nat Phillips has the second best defensive record of any Liverpool defender this year, besides Joel Matip, who's another fantastic, very underrated player that I, I can talk more about some other time, but even if these stats are not true, 
is not better. It shouldn't even be close. You know, Phillips is objectively worse at everything than Virgil van Dijk is. And the difference is a big difference in a lot of areas. Things like passing out of the back, dribbling, pace, there are worlds between them. And the difference in some things, like heading, is very small. But still, there is there is a huge overall difference. So my question, Martin, is like, how is this even possible that you can remove two good center backs from a team, keep the rest of the team consistent, replace them with Nat Phillips and someone who's generally been a pretty poor partner, who's been usually Reese Williams or Ozan Kabak, two other players that maybe shouldn't be at this level either. And the team gets better. How is this even possible? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think the way that I would like to kind of visualize this is maybe in a little bit more of an abstract sense, I'm talking about kind of like the mentality of these players in these situations. Okay. So I think one thing that you definitely have, if you're a player like Van Dyke who has come in second or whatever for a Ballon d'Or vote, and you have a lot of press around you, you have a lot of cameras flashing, is you have the expectation, you have the baseline expectation that you're going to play unbelievably well week in, week out. You're not going to let anything in. You know, I know, for instance, and this is a unique stat too, Ronald Araujo, who is one of also our academy players who kind of came through and was has like he's been a shining star for us this year had some stat at some point where like he had played like 962 minutes and had not been dribbled past once. That's like the Van Dyke standard. That's like the Van Dyke thing, right? Where it's like sure is, when, yeah. when you, when Van Dyke is playing, everybody holds him to a certain standard. So one thing that I think is kind of interesting, right? Is like this dynamic where let's say we have these two players, Phillips and Mingisa that came through the Academy. One thing that I think could be a pretty interesting angle to view this through is the idea of pressure. And, I, and when I say pressure, I don't mean pressure as like the stats that mean guess as good at. I mean pressure like the the ghosts that weigh on you when you are going into a final and you have you know anxieties or nerves and expectations and and people lots of people chanting and then kind of you know they take it personally. I think that the idea here, right, is like there there is a there is a unique dynamic when you're a player who like these two in particular, maybe we're like surprised that they were playing for the B team at some point. They were surprised. They were delighted to be playing. You know, I know Mingisa was probably delighted to be playing for Barcelona B, was probably relishing his substitute minutes, right? Yeah. Suddenly now you're brought up to the A team. The, the, the difference here between two guys who maybe have had a bad run of form, let's say like that Aston Villa debacle, right? Where you have tons of criticism. Everybody's like, oh, these are like internet, like, you know, international players. Van Dyke might be like the captain for the Dutch squad. You, you have these players who did this like disastrous thing compared to some guy who it's like not the dream come true for them. Wasn't even getting to this stage. It was getting to the previous one or the one before that. And suddenly they've leapt onto this. So I think one interesting thing is like, that pressure weighs on you. That pressure, if we think about players having like disk space, like computers, it fills mm -hmm. up a lot of mental disk space. And and you're 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 thinking about, you know, like if you're Trent Alexander Arnold, maybe right now, and you're like everybody's talking about you, that is something that occupies your mindset. And like when you're trying to prepare or focus in a match, you're thinking about other things that aren't the task at hand. So when you're one of these players that comes from nothing you don't really have that same degree of everyone expecting you to be good. When I saw Mingisa starting against Dinamo Kiev, I was like, this is going to be a nightmare. And then he like played okay. And then he got better and then he improved. And now it's like, I can't imagine our team without him starting. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting that you, 
your first reaction when you saw Mingeza in your first team was to say, this is going to be a nightmare. Because I, I kind of had the opposite feeling with Nat Phillips. And maybe it was just because I was kind of feeling down about Liverpool a little bit at the time. But I was like, okay, this is going to be kind of fun. Like, we can just see what he can do. I had no expectations. I think that's kind of what you're talking mm. about. There's not that pressure that, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold has where the whole world's been talking about him since he's 18 years old. They're looking for a bad game. This is just a guy that looked like he'd just been plucked off the street and was thrown in here, and he was going to try his best. And I, I, I don't think I could have been too upset with him, you know, no matter what he did in that game. I think if he had played horrendously bad, I still would have been like, all right, that's fair enough. You still get a great job. That's the expectation, right? But I think yeah. that makes sense. And and even if we have kind of different perceptions of it, I think that the we're, we're kind of we agree on the same core idea, which is that no one is really <laughs> anticipating that they're going to do anything extraordinary. And so when the bar is low, and you know, like one one thing that's obviously super common when you're kind of designing some sort of attacking model or approach to an upcoming game is to say, okay, find which defensive point is the weak link in their line and an attack there, right? Liverpool have been very, very exposed this year because of balls in behind Alexander Arnold, because one team did it once and then every other team did the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the been same a problem thing. For, us for years. Uh, teams actually have been doing it since before this season, but this, this is kind of the year that everyone caught on and started just kind of doing this. And, and what's interesting too, is like all the attention on Trent has also magnified that because maybe people wouldn't have noticed to the same degree if it was, there wasn't all of this, you know, oh, does he get on the plane or not conversation? Maybe they would have, yeah. but, but you know, there's, it's the idea of who's watching what. And I think that when you have many attacking teams that look for the weak link and look to overload that side and you put a player like this in there, it's scary because you're like, okay, why would anybody go down the side of like Lenglet and Jordi Alba when you could go down the side of this new guy, Serginio Dest and Mingesa? Who's Mingesa? Let's attack that side. You know, so you, you almost kind of expect that they're going to get you know, it's trial by fire, but then, yeah, you have this kind of surprising moment. So I guess maybe the, the other thing to kind of get into here is, is this idea of the stage, right? Because at the end of the day, like the stage of playing in a champions league match or playing in for the A team, when it's been your dream, your whole life, you've come up through the Academy, you know, like if you're not Phillips, you were going to go to UNC and then you're now playing for Liverpool. It's a world of a difference. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that I think I want to kind of bring in here too. So, so I wrote an article that was published this week, Monday, yesterday. Um, and, and we're actually, as a sneak peek, we're going to be getting into that next week a little bit in, in greater detail on the podcast. But one of the things that I talked about was like th- this question of why trying to lose can win you trophies, which again, I understand is maybe a little bit clickbaity, but I, I wanted to pose a bunch of different ideas that had to do with why being undefeated is actually like not good in my opinion for a team that's trying to win a championship. So the way I'm going to tie this in here is that one of my final points that I'm going to touch on very briefly here is this idea of unloading your cargo. And so one of the things that I think I, I talked about was like this idea that for, for teams that are like, they, they win everything. They won every single game, the entire regular season or their entire standard season, the, you know, the knockouts, they won every single game in the knockouts and then they get to the elimination round what what is kind of this interesting dynamic is this idea of staying unbeaten it's this invisible streak it's this thing that no one doesn't have any true material value mm-hmm. but it's like this unsaid legacy and so what happens when you kind of get to the stage where now it's like okay we're at the knockout rounds now suddenly not only do you have to think about 
you know, winning that specific fixture and getting to the next round. It's not just a now is the focus thing, but it's also this idea of staying unbeaten. And what that tends to do is if like we, you know, I wrote here, like sometimes when we anchor the significance of the task at hand in something much greater, we intimidate ourselves. Okay. And so the reason, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think that when you take a player, for instance, who is young and talented and has been poached and bought from a big club for a big transfer fee, like let's say Mm -hmm. Renato Sanchez, right? Back when he was coming out of Benfica, right? Perfect example. He's bought by Bayern for what? 35 million with 45 million of added on variables. If he like won Ballon d'Or, right? Total of what could have ended up being 80 million for a guy that was like, what? Maybe 18 who was like just coming off this Euros performance where everybody was like, this guy is really the next big, big thing. Mm-hmm. He, he comes to Bayern for this massive fee. And, and so what that massive fee represents, like you had mentioned earlier, it's the hype, it's the cameras, it's, this is an 18 year old prodigy, right? It's a lot of money. It's, you know, it's kind of, we're seeing it with Joao Felix a little bit coming to, to Atletico Madrid too. And, yeah. and what that, what that tends to do right for that player is it says now, not only have you been given the chance to play for the Bayern first team, right? Let's say it's the same thing as like, you know, Nat Phillips rising to the first team. Like you've now got this opportunity. Now you have to live up to a bunch of other nonsense. And so what that does is now your focus for that player isn't just, okay, I got to kill it in this game. It's, I got to kill it in this game. I got to live up to the hype. I got to make my transfer fee worthwhile. I have to win my previous club more money to, so that via variables that I can win through performance bonuses, all these added things. And what that does is it kind of muddles the current moment with the past and it augments that stage. And so the thing that I think is kind of interesting is you take a player like Mingisa, where it's like, this guy didn't cost us anything except for just coaching him since he was five through the academy. He comes up, he doesn't have that legacy weighing on him. He doesn't have that go- those ghosts that are kind of like, is he going to trip up? Is he going to mess up? No, he's free to make, to get a yellow card. That was silly. He's free to make a tackle that was terrible or like get burned and get beaten. Yeah. He's, he's, he's playing with house up, money in a way. It, yeah. He's, 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 he's not, it's not going to end up on YouTube as a compilation, right. In the way that say like Lenglet certainly has been ridiculed in the media for his mistakes. No one's making fun of Mingisa because we didn't pay 40 million, 50 million to bring him in. And so I think that's another thing that if you going back to the question, right? Like you asked, how is it possible that, our Liverpool team has seemingly almost been elevated by this guy who is this one trick pony, like, you know, one dimensional kind of used to be a nobody. And now is like actually very good. Yeah. I think there's something at play there with the idea of Joe Gomez is also a young guy with lots of expectations riding on him. And maybe that mental, that psychological aspect of, Hey, I've got nothing to lose here is, it is something that allows them to play more freely, to take more risks, to be more adventurous and do things like clear the ball unabashedly and win every single header because they're not worried about the ball bouncing over their head because yeah. they've made it. They've made it already. Yep. I mean, if you're look destined to not have a future in first team football and then you're starting a game for Liverpool and you don't, you don't really have much to lose at that point. Yeah. If you're someone like Nat Phillips or Mingueza for Barcelona. Um, okay. Well, I think... We're, we're coming up on our halftime break here. Uh, we talked a bit about kind of the mental side of it. I do want to set up just a couple things for the second half about the more technical side, about how this is for possible sure. for these one-trick pony players to be successful in the team. And I think 
one possible explanation is that there's value in knowing your own limitations. If you're someone like a Nat Phillips who knows you can only do two things and you only try to do two things, then you're not going to take some risks, maybe, that uh, a more complete player would. You might play within yourself a little bit more. It, you might not make as many you know, bad like YouTube highlight reel-worthy mistakes. And I think for, <laughs> for the players around you, too, it can be good to have that kind of very reliable player that you know exactly what he's going to do every time. It, it's Ooh, it's like kind that. of an easy like player that. to play around. And, but I think the bigger reason, and what I really want to get into in the second half, is that I, I think all these extra skills that Van Dyke has that make him better than Nat Phillips, I don't think they're that important to the center back position. I think that's a hot take right there. I think they're great things to have. I think they can really elevate a team. But I also think it is completely possible to, to work around that, to have a player like Nat Phillips who is not going to provide or incisive long passing or great pace. I think if you structure a team correctly, you can use these one-trick ponies. And if they are elite at doing one thing, then you can take advantage of that and get them doing that one thing. I think they can really elevate your, your game. I think they're being maybe underutilized in the modern game. But that's something we can look Ooh. at in the second half. And uh, yeah, Martini, you got anything else to round off this first period? No, I think that sounds good. I'm excited. Let's uh, go grab our, our water and we'll be right back. And we're back. What is up, guys? Uh, I just had a fantastic kind of like post halftime break intro and I, I came in here. I realized in the first session that my finger was bleeding. I went, I repaired it. I came back, had a wonderful kind of like vocal uh, performance to get us started. And then disaster struck. Uh, Will, you you interrupted me. Uh, you told me that you were looking at the Chelsea lineup and that, you know, I had to I had to pause. And so we lost our whole, you know, wave of authenticity, our whole natural, you know, beginning. So here we are. Will is done looking at the Chelsea lineup. He has he has refocused and he's good to go for the second half. Uh, I think so. And I'm really sorry if the second half ends up being terrible now. We have something to blame it on. It's completely my fault. <laughs> it was the intro. I ruined our entire flow. <laughs> we had a, um, we had a good thing going and it was just chopped by what is it? Belt Ben Ben Chilwell starting at striker. Is that the surprise I, I, of the day? That seems to be it. Yeah. Nacho Fernandez and Ben Chilwell will be leading the lines for their respective teams. So very exciting. <laughs> I I'm think that that's maybe that. part of the reason why we're gonna we're, we're gonna get going here. I know our, our first episode was quite a lengthy one. This is our halftime break. So we intend to make this the halftime break. Uh, we've got a game coming up in 25 minutes now that we as soccer podcast hosts, I guess we can call ourselves that now, are going to be late we for, can. which is which is a sin, which is a fat sin. Um, so let's get this this show on the road. Will, I know you have a lot of things that you want to chat about. So um, why don't you go ahead and get us started? What's yeah, I'll, first I'll get us topic? back on track here a little bit. Um, I want to open by just talking about the general, like what I've called the football talent discovery system. You know, on a very broad scale, I, I have a lot of trust in it. I expect that the best players are going to rise to the top of the game. I expect that, you know, especially with how good scouting has become recently, that, you know, there's not going to be the next Messi isn't like languishing in obscurity in the Austrian third division. You know, if the players are good, someone's going to find them and they will eventually find their way to the top clubs. 
And I think that the the system kind of corrects itself too. You know, if you end up with a Conte and a Riyad Mahrez at, you know, League Two teams at a a pretty late point in their career, then eventually, you know, Leicester's going to pick them up and they're going to make their way to top clubs eventually. I, I feel like this works in a general sense. But once in a while, a player will come through and like really challenge this idea I have and really make me think like, does this actually work? And hmm. I've, I've mentioned that I watched the Premier League. Uh, so I think the most famous example to a lot of people of this is Jamie Vardy, who came up with Leicester. He was playing in, you know, the, the far low reaches of, you know, non-league English football. And then within a few years, he was winning the Premier League with Leicester City. And I think other players that kind of fit into this, a bit of an older example, throwing it back a bit, uh, is this guy called Michu, who hmm. spent his whole career as a very average second division forward in Spain. He was nothing special. He came to Swansea for one season, set the Premier League on fire, 18 (laughs) goals, and then kind of just regressed back into being a normal second division player for the rest of him. And now the streets streets will never forget Michu. They never will. The story goes. That was a great time in my young life. Uh, But I I think think most recently now. I want to clarify though, Will. So you you were mentioning like Conte and Mares, and then you set aside Vardy. What's the what's the difference that you're trying to highlight there? Well, I mean Conte and Mares, they they were still within touching distance, right? I guess. I mean they there was players who had been you know Mares, especially was brought in from Algeria. He had just made his way to Europe. He's playing at this club. It took him a couple of years to really get noticed, but then once he was. It was a very quick path up. He went to Leicester, and within a couple seasons, he was good enough at Leicester. He ends up at Man City. Conte, the same thing. Leicester to Chelsea. Yeah, more of a normal trajectory, I guess. It it, it was delayed, but it was still the normal trajectory. It's what you expect to see. You don't don't expect that massive leap that Jamie Vardy makes. And Mm. Nat Phillips now is another example of this, where a player seems destined for pretty much his entire career to be set for one level of football, and then they're given a chance and they reveal like, oh, my God, they can do it at a much higher level than mm, we okay. thought they were able to. And this this applies to, I think, players like Mingesa, too. You know, once they're given the chance, they're clearly good enough. So my, my kind of initial question to you is how are these guys getting missed? Like if they're clearly good enough to be playing at this level, how is it that no one's noticing and they're being left in the lower leagues to kind of rot? Huh. That's a good question. Um, it's a big question. I think, yeah. I mean, I think one thing that you no- definitely notice is that sometimes I, I'm trying to figure out how to formulate this. I think sometimes that that stage that we were talking about earlier, that stage where you've got nothing to lose is like the thing that sets these players free. If you take mm-hmm. a player that's like, like Mingesa, who's just really good at like pressuring the ball, right? And has, again, you can look at his stats. You can find that he's actually very good at assisting for a center back, but that's also partially because he's played fullback for us and it's a little bit more complicated. But if Mm -hmm. you take a player like that and then you put them in an academy where they're being compared to players that were like brought into the academy as kind of like the next PK, you know, the next Puyol. These players that like kind of have that full toolkit that is simply reduced in terms of their like, it's like a mean shift, you know, like these players that maybe like, have the passing capability that can play like positionally for for Barcelona's beast team because they were brought up doing the Barca way. And again, I maintain this. Mingesa is a good passer, but it, it kind of pales in comparison when you can put him next to somebody like Piquet, for instance. And so I think yeah, maybe I, I would say the same about Nat Phillips. Like he's he's a good passer, but you know it's it's compared to the people next to him that he is not. Yeah, and, and so maybe maybe the thing is like you take this totally. St- 
it's like the stark contrast is kind of what's necessary for them to almost like really really shine like like if you take that guy that is a one-trick pony and even if you have a one-trick pony at the a level or at the b level it's almost like you need them to be totally freed of the shackles and of whatever you know like chains are are, are weighing down that horse to really watch them go and kind of explode and if we talk about you know we go back to like the thing that we talked about briefly with like effort right you see a player like this that's just sweating their off like just going all in pressuring the ball you can't say that did i I do the curse word thing yeah you did the curse word thing (laughs) i guess that's my turn now we're gonna have a nice believe in the podcast so um apologies sound effects sound effects ready to go already i'm excited i i apologize to all the um the infants that are listening that have become fans after our first episode that are listening to this and are going to be scarred um, and, and, you know, babbling curse words now to, to all their toddler teammates. But anyway, I think, I think the, the idea here, right. is like maybe that one trick pony dynamic, no matter what level you're at, isn't really kind of unleashed until you get to the stage where it's like, literally, how did I get here? I'm going to do, I'm just going to go kind of crazy with it. I'm just going to kind of every single ball, I'm going to win that header. Every single time the ball gets near me, I'm going to punt it into the stands. I'm going to clear the ball. Maybe there's something like that, but, but I'm not quite sure. What, what, how do you, how do you kind of see this, bro? I, I really agree with that. I think um, what you said about playing with those shackles on is really at the core of this, you know, for, for a one trick pony to be successful, they have to be played like a one trick pony. You know, if you, hmm. if you ask Nat Phillips to do things he's not good at, he wouldn't be good. You know, he's been great at Liverpool because he's been able to play in a way that is this limited. And I, I think what I kind of want to get at here is I don't think these players are being missed. I don't think Nat Phillips is an isolated case that was, you know, a, a great Premier League level center back that just got completely missed by the football talent thing and ended up kind of languishing in, in an academy without being played. I think there's lots of these players out there. Hmm. I think I think there's lots of these players that you know have exceptional skills even from a young age. You know, there's probably a lot of players like Nat Phillips who are elite with the ball in the air. But like you said, you know, it's it's that mean balance. I, I don't think is what coaches are looking for. Yeah, so much that's these really, days. well. That might be something interesting to think about too, because we talked. You touched briefly in the first section about like this idea that you know we we look at defenders now and the thing that people want are like ball carrying center backs we want like absolutely like the guy like laporte or like van dyke or like you know Linglet does this a lot for barcelona or you look at i don't know harry Maguire. that's like really really good at progressing the ball that's like the new thing is like that's where the transfer fees are rising is these center backs that like can dribble out of the back now and we will totally have another episode on the merits of doing that but if you go to its core it's like are those things are those things the criteria that we really are looking for in defenders? And are we now kind of like almost muddling our priorities and saying, oh, when I look into the B Academy, oh, that guy's a really good defender, but he can't pass the ball. He can't, you know, do a rainbow in the corner flag. How do you feel about that? I I feel the same way. I think, you know, it's very clear when you look at the center backs now that get bought for big money, you know, your Upamecano, your Diaz, your Matias DeLitt. You know, they're all fantastic on the ball. And for a lot of them, that's kind of the thing that gets highlighted the most. And you never hear like, oh, Barca are looking at this new center back prospect. He's he's awful on the ball. But besides that, <laughs> he's great. 
you know, he doesn't let anybody pass it doesn't him, exist but anymore. we can't use him in build-up. He has to go sit on the sideline when we're in possession. That's yeah. the thing, though, right? That's, like, part of the evolution of tactics, too, is that, like, we're seeing kind of, I think, a lot of these players that now you are – if we look at Griezmann, right? Griezmann this year is a guy that there's been a lot of discourse around. And the main defending thing for Griezmann's poor run of form – I say that within, you know, with, with air quotes – his poor run of form being, you know, maybe he's not finishing or he's not assisting or whatever. The thing that's like defended him or people have used to defend his performances has been his defensive output. I know. Like his his defensive contribution. And we're talking about a guy that like played left wing for Real Sociedad, played false nine for Atletico Madrid, plays like some kind of pseudo hybrid of the two for Barcelona right now, kind of maybe in the 10 role. It kind of depends. And you're saying that that guy, his his saving grace as like a 100 million plus signing is like his defensive output up up yep, on the field. I've, I've heard the same to excuse Firmino still getting regular starts for Liverpool, you know, over the years. Um, it's I think it's kind of crazy, and I think it's the way that this is going. I think with the popularization of kind of Pep's and the Del Bosque Spanish teams, you know, tiki taka possession style of play. I think there's been kind of a huge global shift where now this is very valued, where you want everyone on your team, you know, even keepers now in a lot of cases are expected right, to right. be good on the ball to be able to pass. And that goes the other way too. Like you mentioned, you know, forwards are expected to be able to defend. If you're a forward I mean, or a midfielder and you don't track back, that's pointed at as a massive, massive flaw in your game. A hundred percent. And one of the things that people were talking about a lot when Messi was kind of rumored, like, oh, Messi's going to go to Man City. He's going to go to Man City. Everybody was really excited about it. But then there were a lot of people that were like, okay, but how does he fit into Man City's pressing scheme? And can Man City afford to have a player that doesn't press the ball like Leo, who basically just kind of like walks around the field the whole time? And it's like, you're about to turn down. I mean, not yeah. necessarily, but imagine the scenario in which you're Man City and you turn down a player of Messi's quality because he can't defend. So this is kind of maybe it's the insanity. core of the issue, right? Where like maybe these people are looking into the academy and they're like, okay, we need somebody who is so well-rounded in every single role, an attacker that can defend, a defender that can attack, a, a midfielder that can do everything, and a defender that can do everything, a keeper that can, you know, again, assist, a, a keeper that makes assists. It's like, okay, but for that specific role, what is really strictly necessary? Do you need all of that? Yeah, and I, I want to get it straight. That, like, I think these things are good. You know, in an ideal world, if you're a huge club with unlimited resources, you want all of your players to be really good at everything. That's great. You know, if you have 11 men who can pass a ball around really well and you have strikers who are going to be pressing from the front and defending, you know, that makes for a better team. It makes you more flexible. It makes you more unpredictable. But that's that's with unlimited resources, right? And I think what's really important here, something I want to get into, is the concept of diminishing returns on these skills. Hmm. I think okay. once you get past a certain point of the skill, you know, for your team as a whole, it stops mattering as much. And I think an example I could use that most people would probably agree with is finishing. I think I think everyone who supports a team would agree that you don't need all 11 or even all 10 field players on your teams to be great finishers. You know, you're going to get the goals from certain positions. You're going to try and get the players who are good at finishing into positions where they have to do it. And they will pick up the slack for everyone else. And while obviously it's great if you have 10 people who can, you know, put the ball into the net, the difference between having nine and 10 people who can do that hmm. is nowhere near as large as the difference between having, say, two people who can do that and having three people you can do that. You know, those last few players don't matter that much. Well, and I think what's maybe the starkest example of that is like dead ball specialists, 
right? Why would you need every single player on your team to be good from corners or good from set pieces or a good penalty kick taker when for PKs, you realistically need five, maybe six. For corners, you need one on each side. Maybe if you want to stick with in-swingers or out-swingers, you need one guy to belt it in for long-distance free kicks. Maybe one guy who's better short short distance. You don't need to sign up, you know, to, to make it a criteria for your signings for all your wingers and all your attacking midfielders and all your strikers to be good at something that maybe you only really need one of. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, that's a very specific example, but do you think like this applies at some level to broader skills like passing? Like, is it okay if you have someone on your team who you just are not going to pass it to you? Just I mean, that's, bypass them? that's super interesting. I, I think we had a brief conversation about this idea of like, if you have somebody like that, who you know cannot do a certain thing. The question is like, can you design a team? Can you design like a game model around that? And I think it's a limitation. Um, I think one thing about a lot of like modern football that's like very fluid. And if you think about like positional play, which is founded on like not necessarily the formation, but more so having players occupy spaces at certain times. So it's like a lot of interchanging and all things like that. I think in a situation like that, you kind of expect that each person is going to be able to uh, uphold that system. But if you think about it, like, and you think about, say, I'm trying to think of, of an example. If I think of, for instance, Griezmann, again, we go back to Griezmann. Griezmann, I think historically has been an excellent, like, 1v1 attacker. But this year, if I ha- give him the ball, I do not want him running at a defender because he's really just not going to beat them. I've, we've seen mm-hmm. it plenty of times. He's an, he's an excellent player. He's a weird player. But he's not going to beat them. And so it's like you have this attacker who can't dribble there. So, yes, they tend to maybe, like shape their 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 output or like what they do on the field to sidestep those things or to kind of highlight things that they are good at i think that maybe there's a way that you can incorporate it um but it is a limitation it is definitely a limitation yeah it's a limitation but like you said i think it's one that can be worked around if you try hard enough but this this isn't something people are trying to work around i think the, the trend very clearly in uh, you know, the top level of football is to instead get rid of these limited players. I think hmm. one place where I think this is very, very clear uh, over the past decade is with the death of the number 10 position. Hmm. You know, there, there used to be uh, loads right. of these players, you know, these attacking midfielders who had no real defensive responsibility. They weren't expected to track back. They were just there just to get the ball and be good with it and create. And yeah. over my, the past decade, we, we've... I guess the collective football world has decided you can't do that anymore. You you can't be that uninvolved in the other areas of the game. You need to be more of an all-around mm-hmm. player. I think that's that's kind of a big trend that's going to come. I think that's going to lead to, you know, players like clumsy center backs like Nat Phillips who, the, who can't play with the ball at their feet. They're going to get phased out eventually too. One-dimensional target man strikers they're going to get phased out too. So, and do you think one trick ponies have any kind of future in this world at the top clubs? So one thing to consider here is this idea of, yeah, like the utility player. We, we, we've chatted about the utility player. Liverpool has like one of the most legendary utility players ever in James Milner, who like is, is like good at absolutely nothing yet is, is excellent. Like, like it's impossible to really describe, right. Or like he's good at penalties. He, I don't, I don't he's, know. James Miller is pretty good at everything. He's not great at anything, but he's 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 like the exact opposite of a one-trick pony. He's like the most average at everything. But he yes, is, I, I think he, he does have the same kind of value as a utility player. So continue. But I but I think like I don't know. One thing that I what I that I definitely think about is the comparison between 
um, so, well, okay. So you mentioned the, the idea that like you can have a certain amount of, you have like a quota that you need to meet of a certain skill within a team. So you can mm -hmm. have kind of this concept of like, we need this many, like if you were to rank players based on their skills, right? So like you were, let's say this player has, you know, is in the 95th percentile for passing. The other person is the 85th percentile. You need like a cumulative, you know, 700 percentile points to really sure. be a side that can pass fluidly, right? This is what you're kind of saying earlier. I think Maybe that not this exactly, is something but that that's the concept. Yes, sure. I think that this is something that like you can do that. You you can have a situation where it's like okay, you know, both of my fullbacks don't necessarily need to be stellar at attacking. That's an example that I think is quite interesting, right? If you look at Man City, what they do is they have an interesting kind of lopsided shift where they start with the fullback in the attacking phases of the game. They move their four three three into basically a three in the back where Walker will shift from the right back position into like this right center back position. You'll have stones maybe anchoring or Diaz anchoring. And then the other, the other one kind of as the left center back, the fullback on the opposite side, be it Zinchenko or what was Fabian Delph or what is might be Cancelo might move into more of an attacking transition place, or they actually, what is more common is they move into like the six. So what you have here is you have like one of your fullbacks is like, can be a center back. The other fullback can be a six. And so you have maybe this lopsided thing where it's like, okay, well, if one player is, is more suited towards one thing, has the physicality to play center back, you know, is more of this hybrid player in that role. And I have a different player on the other side that does a different thing. There is a little bit of this idea that you can have this like asymmetrical shifting thing between phases of the game. And so I, I could totally see a situation where, you know, let's say you have one winger that's like really good with balls in behind, chasing them, getting to the corner flag, beating players in the dribble. You can design a system where then maybe you're, th that player is put into positions to do that. You know, they're touchline wide, chalk on their boots, that you you look to feed them through. Maybe your other winger brings an entirely different skill set to the table. And maybe they bring, you know, they're really good as kind of like more of a false nine, kind of drifting centrally, kind of like the messy role where they look to collect the ball and they look to penetrate from deep. We, 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 there's a, there's an example here, for instance, between, if you look at Usman Dembele and Francisco Trincao, Usman Dembele is an excellent one V one terrorizer. He's like mm -hmm. very volatile. He has these very, very like jittery movements, but he's love terrifying, watching. terrifying to defend. Trincao is a good dribbler, but if I have to pick one to do one V one attacking, it's Dembele. What I would prefer Trincao for are these like runs from deep where we're possessing the ball, possessing the ball. There's a team that's like holding the six, we can't get through them. Trincao is really, really good at timing a run that starts like 30 yards away. He knows exactly just when to kind of bend his run and then pop through the offside line to receive a ball over the top. Totally diametrically opposite skill sets, yet they both do have a place. And so maybe the idea is like, if you have a one-trick pony, you need to simply make up for them by creating a system that accommodates and kind of like counterbalances their deficiencies or the things that they aren't so good at. I agree. And I think if you do that correctly, I mean, remember what the defining trait of a one trick pony is they are elite at this certain skill. Mm -hmm. I think if you set up your team to take advantage of that, and it can really elevate your game overall. And I think one team I look at as an example that did this is Stokes like 10, 15 years ago. Stoke City were the <laughs> ultimate one-trick pony team because they had two of them. They had Peter Crouch, who, I mean, to be oh fair, gosh. 
maybe I shouldn't call it one trick pony because he was very deceptively skilled all around. But at certain times in his career, and especially when he was at Stoke, he was played as that, you know, six foot eight, oh. six foot nine center forward who was just going to be taller than everyone else and win the balls in the air. And yeah. alongside him, they had my favorite one trick pony of all time. He was a man named Rory DeLapp. And for those of you who may not be familiar with Roy DeLapp, he was, by all accounts, and from my memories of watching him, like a League One or League Two level footballer. But <laughs> my God, could you throw a ball in? And Stoke. You're would, kidding. Uh, that was his trick. Throws. That was his trick. Long throws. Huh. Look this guy up. And, and everyone hated them for it. You know, everyone was like, oh, Stoke don't play real soccer. But it worked. Oh, they they took gosh. advantage of these two really weird players. They'd have Roy Lapp throwing the ball into Peter Crouch, and they'd finish mid-table every single season because they That's played hilarious. to their strengths. So I'm not going to lie. Like as a as a City fan, like I I know that Liam Delap is in the academy for City, so I recognize the name. But I'm looking him up now, and this is hilarious. When you you know how you look up something in Google you have like on the sidebar, if they're a famous person, they have the name and they have kind of like their brief bio from Wikipedia and sure. they have a collection of images. Yeah. Every single image of him. The first one is him drying the ball off with his shirt. The second oh. one is him throwing the ball in. The third is him throwing the ball. And the fourth is like a, you know, picture that would go in like the starting 11, like, you know, graphic at the beginning of the game. And then the fifth one is him throwing the ball in again. So yeah. this is like, this is like a transcendent one trick pony. This is like, the one trick pony. And I, I don't think I don't think it's something you're gonna see in the modern game. Mm. I don't know. I mean Stoke got a lot of flack for doing this at the time. Everyone always made fun of them. And no one was under illusions that Stoke were like a better soccer team, that you know their players were better at football than the people they were coming up against at beating. But they were still <laughs> winning. It was still known as a very hard place to go. And then kind of in line with the rest of the trends, Stoke went through a phase where they went away from it. Where, where they stopped hmm. using these one-trick ponies, what they tried to become, what a lot of teams were trying to become, this barcelona light tiki-taka style of play. And they signed players like Shakiri and Boyan and Afle. I think Arnautovic was there for a short time. Yeah, they signed yeah. Uh, Joe Allen in the midfield. I mean, that's a really good ball-playing core of midfielders. And Stoker relegated. They're, they're out of the Premier League. Doesn't look like they're coming back anytime soon. It's like, is, is that connected? Should they have stuck with what was working for them? I think what's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think if you look at some of those styles of play that you're mentioning is like, you know, kind of if a team tries to do it, they may be, it's so complicated. It's so involved. It requires so many pieces to really buy into it. It's, it's harder to achieve compared to some strategy that's like designed such that maybe everybody does something together. That's teamwork based. That's like defending as a unit, clearing the ball. And then you have like you know, if you think back to the, the what was it, 20, 2009, 2010 Champions League run where Mourinho versus Pep, Inter Milan, Barcelona, semifinal, I believe, the year that basically earned Mourinho his ticket to Real Madrid as the coach. Mm -hmm. what, what, what that team basically did was they had like Zanetti and they had all these other like defenders. They had, they had defensive midfielders. They had Cambiasso. They had like all these guys that basically just created what Mourinho called a gabia, a jail around Messi. And everywhere Messi went, they were like, we need four players to, to, to put a boot through this guy's knee, you know? And they just, they suffocated him. They suffocated him. They suffocated him. And what was their attacking kind of solution? They simply bombed it up the field to like Goran Pandev, I believe, was playing in that game, who also would come back and yeah. defend quite a bit. Or I believe Diego Melito, like, 
or and yep. and it was maybe um I'm forgetting I'm forgetting the right back, the Brazilian right back. But it was like um, they Mike would Con, literally I think. Yeah, Mycon might have been on that team too. Like they would basically just have nine men behind the ball and hit it forward for like their one player to chase into the corner and then find somebody up top. Was I, I don't remember whether Eto was playing for Inter Milan at that point or whether he was I, I don't know. I can maybe look that up. But you can also kind of maybe as a side note, you can see a little bit of that resemblance with the way that Mourinho tried to coach Tottenham. And you can see why people had this distaste for it too, which is like everybody does something that's effort-based. That's all about, you know, balls and, and like, you know, yeah. having, you know, being grittier and, and being more of a man, you know, and then you just have like, you know, Hinman son and Terry Kane up top waiting for the ball. And it's just like, you guys do the rest, you know? Yeah. And, and I and, think that's a, that's a style that's very conducive to one trick ponies. And I think Son is actually someone I, I might label as kind of a high-level one-trick pony. Uh, and hmm. Mourinho is a really interesting example because Mourinho I've always kind of loved because he manages top clubs like they are very small clubs. And I always find that <laughs> really interesting. And for this reason, I'd love to actually see him at a smaller club someday. I don't know if it'll ever happen now that he has this reputation and he's, you know, he's used to getting these massive paychecks. But... Mourinho at Burnley or something like that. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see what he can do. But this this kind of ties into the last thing I want to talk about. I see we're kind of getting close to our full-time whistle here. So I'll wrap it up with this general point. I think one-trick ponies are dead at, at the top level. For the very top clubs, I think the resources and the style of play means that these clubs are going to look to bring in all-around players who can do it all. They're not going to be buying Nat Phillips for $40 million. Uh, they're going to look for players who are a bit more versatile because that's that's better to have in the squad. It makes you a bit more flexible. And, you know, for the possession style of play that's common right now, it's good. But I think, I think one-trick ponies do have a future at smaller clubs with limited resources. I think if you play smart and build your team around them in the correct way, then they can really, you know, make your team become something it's not. And if you have a player... Like, you know, a Nat Phillips, who is better than everyone else in the air, and you allow him to just do that. Or, you know, uh, Peter Crouch. Or one example I think of, like, Adebayo Akinfenwa. You know, a bit of a meme legend from down the lower leagues. But yes, was was he the right manager away from, like, actually tearing up the Premier League because nobody would have been able to stop him physically? I think maybe. But I, I'm kind of worried, though, about the futures of these one-trick ponies in general. And the reason I, I why... Kind of get after this is the question i'm going to ask you martin is with with the world becoming kind of a global marketplace now for football with the prospect that a talk with with the globalization of scouting and how extensive these networks are now can can get their talent from anywhere do you think the prospect of that kind of big money sale to a top club has changed the players that academies are producing overall or changed the kind of players that they're looking to make i think it might have yeah, I mean, it's a, it's it's tough. Oh, that's a good question. I think that's a big question I, to end it on. So. Well, I brief, I really wanted, to, I briefly wanted to touch on something that you mentioned um, beforehand, which is this idea that Nat Phillips, you know what you're getting out of him. He's kind of like reliable because he's not trying to do ninety different things at the top level. He's trying to do two of them. Mm -hmm. For the small club, that reliability might just be the thing that matters more than doing everything to a to a worse degree. And and I think that when you when you get to the top what ends up kind of happening is it's almost like this like you saturate just how good of a defender you can really be. So now you start expecting other things. So now it's like okay, this is the best team in the world, supposedly the best defensive line in the world. They're all really 
really good defenders. Now we start asking other things. We're like, okay, well, he can he can defend. So now, hmm, can he also slot into the six if we need him to? Or like in certain phases of play, can he kind of like transition forward and, pl- and play that six role? Or like, can he play, you know, do the things that a fullback does? Or can he start doing the things that a, you know, late in the game can he bomb forward and like be a you know a second striker yeah i think you kind of get to the point where it's almost like when you have it all you start asking like all right what else you know you always there's a whole thing with like wealth right that people always think about like oh when you're really really rich like why do really really rich people like want to keep getting more money this is pretty societal and political and whatever but like (laughs) the fact of the matter is you get there and it's like kind of relative it's like yeah you feel yeah. you're really really rich but for you you always want more these top clubs always want more they they have the best defensive center back in the world and they're thinking to themselves you know what would be great is if you could ping a long ball just a little bit more accurately instead of thinking to yeah, themselves and that's that's what i'm saying like, with these top clubs they they have you know the resources now where those are the things you're looking for with the with the huge pool of talent they can draw from it's like why not get the person who can do the most and then you hope you can develop their overall level a bit rather than trying to teach Nat Phillips how to do seven right. or eight things he doesn't know about. But I think what I was trying to get at with the question about the kind of the globalization is I think that even academies for smaller clubs now, you know, the academies of a, a championship team in England, for example, that's not right. going to play a tiki-taka style of play, that's going to play, you know, a defensively defensive-minded thing that Nat Phillips would be perfect for. I don't think they're trying to produce Nat Phillips anymore. I think they're trying to produce players that they can sell on to the top clubs. And the result Ooh, of this interesting. is that Academy is, you know, across the board now, you know, even a team that's losing every game playing defensively is still going to try to develop players that can fit into this possession based style of the moment. Cause you see um, with Birmingham city and Jude Bellingham, and you see how much of a difference that can make. You know, you get one good youth prospect who is a good enough all-around player to sign for Dortmund for 25 mil. You retire that, his jersey. You retire his jersey because that's how <laughs> much that sale means. Right. No, I, I mean, mean that's that's very telling. I, I think you see it too with like some of these things where it's like you'll always see the occasional headline that's like, oh yeah, this random player who's playing in the Premier League, like who scored his 10 goals, has now activated some clause in his contract that gives his yeah, home club too. in the middle of Romania like 1 million, which can now pay for like two years of their expenses. I think you're totally right. This like selling model. If I if we go back to Barcelona, that's been one issue that a lot of people have had concerns with, where you have Cucurella, who's like been lost to Getafe. You have Grimaldo, who went to Benfica. You have like a bunch of random t- like like Manchu I mentioned him earlier he's at Gir- he's at Girona now on loan we've lost any number Eric Garcia went to Man City Xavi Simmons went yeah. to went to PSG all these players Kubo went to Real Madrid you know like yeah we have all of these all of these examples of players and then you ask yourself like is what is the purpose of the academy is the academy to generate revenue is the academy to feed the first team and that's a philosophical debate that each academy kind of has to have for themselves and if you look at an academy like Burnley that might be like, you know, oh, well, in order to play for Burnley, like, you know, you as a child, if you've dreamt your whole life of playing for Burnley, like right now, the way that we play is we uh, are the box. We like, yeah, like we are like blocking shots. Like Burnley, you can't shoot against Burnley because they block your shots. They're almost like not really trying to design players to fit that one. Also to add on to what you're saying, because they already have it. Yeah. For them, the players they might be trying to create is like, Maybe they're not trying to create Nat Phillips's because they want this seemingly better form of a defender, which is the all-rounded defender. The academy is trying to teach them how to pass, how to do these other things. For a team that actually 
has those better defenders, why would they ever quote unquote regress to a Nat Phillips or a Mingisa style that's one dimensional if they're already kind of producing the role of this, you know, multiple trick pony? Like, yeah, why would they do that? The the multiple trick pony is a good way to put it. I think that's that's a good way to uh, conclude what I want to talk about. It's, you know, I think this is going to become more common. I think I think just football has gotten better on the whole. You know, you hear all these old head pundits talking about it all the time. Like, oh, we we didn't need to play the ball like this in my day. You know, you could, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't have Joe Hart getting kicked off of the Man City team because he couldn't play. I I think the general trend is that there's going to be you know kind of a higher baseline. Like you have to be this good at everything involved in soccer, or else you're never going to make the chance at a top club. I think yeah. this general shift has already taken place at the very top clubs. I think it's going to extend, like I mentioned, academies that are trying to produce players for these clubs. I think what's going to happen then is one-trick ponies are just going to get weeded out at a much earlier age than they maybe had been in the past and not given the opportunities. Because if you're a youth coach and you have a choice between Nat Phillips and a player who has 90% of Nat Phillips heading and clearance ability, but is much more well-rounded. He's much better at everything else. You're going to pick the second one every time. And I can't blame you. You know, it, it, you have that p- idea of potential there too, where you're like, oh, this guy could develop into something so much more than Phillips is. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the choice that's probably being made by hundreds of academy coaches every day across the world. But mm. I just keep coming back to this point. If you play in a way where Phillips only has to head the ball, where he only has to clear it, then he's still the better player out of those two. If you, if you, it's, it's, it comes down to like, how do you define that role? What are you looking for in that role? If you are a, def, if you look at a defensive line and you're like, how do you win a game? You score goals, you prevent goals from being scored. This guy doesn't let goals be scored. He gets, he punts the crap out of the ball every time it gets near him. He, he all the pictures of him again, same the Rory DeLap test. You go on Google Images, you look, and all of Nat Phillips's images are like him in the air, like climbing over somebody. I love that. If the Roy DeLap test. I think that's really good. If, 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 if what he does at its core is like what you really need in a defender, why, why get less of that when asking for more of something else? Yeah. I think it's a lovely kind of thought to end on. I, I think it's, uh, I would encourage, you know, if there's any executives of non-top soccer clubs listening, Try some one-trick ponies out, guys. They they could really do something special for you. I think they're being underutilized right now, and I don't want everyone to just try and play the same possession-based soccer where everyone can do everything. That's just kind of boring. I want to see some weird live players. Well, I think with that, I'm looking at the clock. We are 15, 12 minutes. 12, 12 minutes. minutes cutting into the Chelsea-Real Madrid game. I have no idea what the score is. Um... Do you have it up? Do you know if it's zero? zero. zero? Yep. Thrilling. All right. Well, thrilling. So I think what we're going to go ahead and do is go watch uh, Chilwell at the nine and Nacho at the nine and see kind of what emerges from that. Um, Real Madrid and Chelsea definitely haven't played uh, like ever or in, you know, the last 20 years or something ridiculous. It's been a long time. Yeah. So I think we'll go enjoy that. Um, Thanks for joining us here today for our second episode um as always we're gonna see whether we can get this thing on apple podcast we've had some trouble with that in the past but you can find us on spotify i think that's the main channel um we're on stitcher like there's a bunch of amazon podcasts or you can go on deezer or you can go on google podcasts we're there we're everywhere um 
I realized last episode I asked people to leave comments and then I thought about it and I don't know if you can actually <laughs> leave comments on any of those places. Yeah, so no, maybe, I don't I don't know that you can. That's that's probably why we didn't get any. It wasn't that people weren't listening. It's that yeah, no, people they were just didn't to know where comments. to put them. And it's like yeah, Spotify were, comments? I, what the heck? They were like knocking on the door, but no one was home. Yeah, yeah. no, I think I think the, the comments were there. We just, you know, we haven't given them a place to to exist yet. No, we'll, I think we'll figure that, that out. On that note, right, like on Twitter, I think Twitter is the best place for to go for comments just to have general discourse with us if you have any questions. Or if you think, for instance, that, that Nat Phillips is actually a disaster, that you think Mingesa is a disgrace to the game, we would love to hear that. I would love to hear your, your opinions and like to discuss that with you. Um, and, and so if you feel so inclined, at Touchline Theory on Twitter, um, I'm at MG underscore theory on Twitter. Will I'm is going now, to get a... I'm, no, I did it last night. I am now WA underscore theory uh, Brilliant. on Twitter as well. So I, I have so, no followers, no posts. Hoping to keep go, it that way. So don't bother <laughs> me. No, see, you got to, you got to. You got to go heckle Will. So if you're if you have time to spare, go you know check out Will's zero 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 profile. He's got nothing going on there. Send him a comment. Tell him you know Nat Phillips should have gone to North Carolina. Do me a favor and 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 do that because you know he ruined the intro today for the second half, and we've got to we've got to balance it out somehow. I think That's we've the karma. It. I think we had a good second half, good podcast. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, I think with that. Let's watch this game. Till next time, folks. Till next time.